Good morning, everybody. <clears throat> Good morning, everybody. We are uh, reading 2 Corinthians together. Uh, we have been for a while. It's a letter that the Apostle Paul wrote uh, because his relationship with the church there in Corinth had taken uh, a pretty bad hit. Uh, the, the majority of the letter, most of the letter, was written to foster and deepen reconciliation uh, with the majority of the church there who were ready to be reconciled to Paul and restored to him, who were ready to see him again. But now uh, we are in the last part of the letter where Paul uh, addresses directly uh, what had caused most of the trouble there in Corinth in the first place. Uh, influential teachers had moved in after Paul left Corinth, and they had undercut uh, the church's trust in his leadership, and they had undercut his standing as a spiritual father to them. So what we're going to read this morning uh, is what sometimes gets called uh, the fool's speech. It's this place in the letter where Paul uses uh, tongue-in-cheek boasting and irony and rhetorical questions and sarcasm to get his point across. And it's called the fool's speech sometimes because all through it, Paul repeatedly points out how foolish he feels to even write in this way. So uh, I'm going to read from 2 Corinthians 11 for us. We have verses 5 through 15 printed. We'll, we'll only talk about 5 through 11, but I'll read all of what's printed for us right now. Indeed, I consider that I am not in the least inferior to these super apostles. Even if I am unskilled in speaking, I am not so in knowledge. Indeed, in every way, we have made this plain to you in all things. Or did I commit a sin in humbling myself so that you might be exalted because I preached God's gospel to you free of charge? I robbed other churches by accepting support from them in order to serve you. And when I was with you and was in need, I did not burden anyone. For the brothers who came from Macedonia supplied my needs. So I refrained and will refrain from burdening you in any way. As the truth of Christ is in me, this boasting of not mine will not be silenced in the regions of Achaia. And why? Because I do not love you? God knows I do. And what I am doing, I will continue to do in order to undermine the claim of those who would like to claim that in their boasted mission work, they work on the same terms as we do. For such men are false apostles, deceitful workmen, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So it is no surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. Their end will correspond to their deeds. This is God's word, and it's given for our good. Let me pray for us. Father, we ask uh, now as we uh, think about this word that we've read and heard together that you would meet all of us. We, uh, with open hands, admit that the list of uh, people who are here this morning who need uh, the, what we just sung to be true, that you would give our jaded senses light, that list includes every one of us. <laughs> whether we want to admit that or not, whether we feel ready to have you break into us and give us light or not. Father, show us the grace of Jesus again more clearly and change us by it. And we ask this in his name. Amen. 
Well, about uh, 20 years ago, almost 20 years ago, after our first daughter, Ellie, was born, and uh, after the hospital and the insurance company had gone back and forth and uh, all of the bills were finally settled, Allison and I uh, owed a bunch of money, <laughs> as is often the case in those uh, situations. It wasn't uh, a huge amount of money, not, not relatively speaking, it wasn't. But it was pretty big for us, and it was enough that we couldn't pay it all at once. So uh, I called the billing folks at the hospital, and I asked if we could uh, set up a payment plan with them. And I also asked if maybe there was just some, you know, loose cash sitting around <laughs> for financial assistance to help these fresh-faced young kids taking care of their first baby. I mean, I didn't say exactly those words, but that was definitely uh, the tone that I was going for because things were tight. Uh, so they sent me a form in the mail because I guess uh, people had not figured out how to use the internet for stuff like that yet. And I filled out that form and I mailed it back and I heard uh, nothing for many, many months. No phone call, no letter, no bill, nothing. So I called the guy that I had spoken to the first time uh, and who had sent me the form and I asked him what was up. He apologized for the delay, told me they were working on it. And then it was like, at least another month and nothing had come to the house, so I called him again. And this time, uh, he put me on hold just for a short bit of time, and when he came back onto the phone, he told me, as easy as you please, that we don't owe anything anymore. <laughs> it was all taken care of, free of charge, have a good day. And you know what, I did have a good day. <laughs> I had a very, very good day. <laughs> You know, one second there was this heavy thing hanging over our heads, and the next second it was gone, completely gone, and we were free of it. Somebody, of course, somewhere did something. I know that, right? A, a transfer uh, from a benevolence fund account, some kind of tax write-off. I don't know. Somebody did something. But to us, it came out of nowhere with no strings attached to it, a gift. And I probably think about that gift four or five times a year since, since it happened. So I know this might seem strange to us, but one of the things that the Apostle Paul was looked down on was for his practice of not taking money uh, from the church at Corinth while he lived and worked there. As a matter of fact, back in 1 Corinthians 9, he actually says that he would rather die than take money from them. Those are his words. He says that doing things the way that he does it gives him enough of a reward, and that reward is that he gets to present the gospel to them free of charge. Another way of saying that is that his friends in Corinth get to receive the good news of Jesus as a gift. No strings attached, as easy as you please, free of charge. As he would famously write later in his life to the Ephesian church, the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus is the gift of God. And that is the deep meaning that runs through this fool's speech. It's not that Paul is sore because somebody said something bad about him something hurtful about him. I mean, sure, that's hurtful. It would hurt anybody. Paul's not a robot. 
But the thing that matters is that if his friends cave to the values that these other teachers are operating out of, he fears that their apprehension and their reception of the meaning of Jesus' death and resurrection will get all out of whack. And that they'll eventually start walking away from faith in Jesus rather than deeper into faith in Jesus. And so I think we all have something to learn from this too about our own values, the things that we care about the most, the way that we think about the things that we care about the most, and about being on guard against anything that would lead us away from this gift, this gift of God's kindness to us in Jesus. So we didn't read uh, verses 1 through 4, but I, I do want you to hear how they start. I wish you would bear with me in a little foolishness. That's what Paul writes. Please bear with me, for I feel a divine jealousy for you. Paul loves these people. He cares for these people. He wants only what is good for them. So if he has to act a fool for a little bit in order to wake them up, he has no qualms at all about doing that. And in verse 5, he wants to be as clear as he can. That's the one that we started with reading. Indeed, I consider that I am not in the least inferior to these super apostles. Now, this is the first time Paul has referenced these other teachers so directly, so squarely right on. And he is so hot that he actually made up a name for them. He actually coined a word. Super apostles is a word that Paul coined. It appears nowhere else in Greek literature before this use right here. And just in case you don't get it, he's using it ironically. (laughs) More literally, here's what that word means. It means the very much apostles. And I love that. If I was in charge of all the English translations, it would always be the very much apostles. As in, you know those guys, the, the very much apostles. I love that. And the heartbeat of it can't be missed. These guys think that Paul is inferior to them. And they want the church to think that too. And here is the beautiful thing, church. Right away, Paul assents to it. Right away, Paul assents to one of their most hurtful charges. Even if I am unskilled in speaking. Paul doesn't contest it. He doesn't try to prove otherwise. He doesn't try to say, no, listen, I really am a good speaker. In fact, back in 1 Corinthians 2, he open-handedly admits that he is not. I didn't come to you with lofty speech, he says. I came in weakness and in fear and in trembling. I didn't have any plausible words of wisdom for you. I know that. Now, we don't have any way of knowing for sure because none of us have ever heard Paul speak. But if he spoke in the same complicated and dense and discursive way that he writes, it was probably pretty hard to follow him when he talked. I mean, he has this towering intellect. And when you read him, sometimes it seems like he is thinking all of the thoughts at once. And he's trying to get all the thoughts down on paper. And it's astounding but it probably didn't regularly translate into great oratory. And at any rate, his public speech couldn't compare to these other teachers who had come in, who had been trained in the latest and best public rhetoric, Seneca. Seneca was a a Roman Stoic philosopher. He was roughly contemporaneous with Paul. He was pretty reflective of the values of the day. 
the things that people really loved when he wrote this about people um, who couldn't speak well in public. This is what Seneca said. What is the listener to think of their souls when their speech is sent into the charge in utter chaos? What should we think of their souls if they can't talk? That's the value. And so it appears that these other teachers were leaning pretty hard into that value in order to undercut Paul and to boost themselves. Like we read a couple of weeks ago together, this is what they said about him. His speech is of no account. And in a cosmopolitan place like Corinth, that mattered. And it's important to see that Paul is not saying that rhetorical skill is inherently wrong. He's not saying that it's not even useful in certain contexts. In fact, I would guess he's a pretty smart guy. He would know that it would be helpful. He probably wished he could speak better in public. But what he is suggesting is that if it is valued so highly that it cuts out other voices, that it cuts out other influences like his own, then it is a value that has to be questioned. In church... This is always part of what it means to follow Jesus. You know know what the New Testament is? The New Testament is a witness to the life and death and resurrection and ascension of Jesus, which is a news that is so profound that it changes absolutely everything. That's what the New Testament is. And so sure, sure, part of the absolutely everything that needs to be changed is what we do, what we do with our bodies, what we do with our voices, or what we don't do. Some of that stuff definitely needs to be changed. But just as importantly, and I mean just as importantly, another part of the absolutely everything that needs to change is how we think about things. It's how we think about things. A couple of weeks ago, we read chapter 10 together, and Paul had a phrase for it. His phrase was this, taking every thought captive to Christ. Thinking matters. It's part of our discipleship. And how we think about stuff matters. It's part of our discipleship. It's part of what it means to follow Jesus. For example, you know, I don't need to tell you, we live in this really deeply polarized culture, in in this deeply polarized climate of speech and act. You know, it's all jittery and nervous and self-righteous, and it's obsessed with making all of the many problems in our world be about the other. And you know, the easy thing would be to absorb that. The easy thing would be to just let that stuff wash over us and to act like that too. But the better thing and the far more needful thing is to ask, how should we live as Christians in a culture like that? You know, to ask ourselves, how does the good news of being a people who are forgiven by grace as a gift with no strings attached, how does that good news speak to self-righteousness? Pretty directly. (laughs) How does the good news of Jesus speak to this desire we have to constantly, anxiously be self-defensive 
or about treating every issue like it's some anxious zero-sum war that we absolutely positively have to win every time. How does being a Christian, how does the good news of Jesus speak to that? This is the level at which Paul is arguing. He's not saying eloquent speakers are bad. (laughs) He's saying if that's all you value, if that is your highest value, you will cut off other voices with substantial and very important things to say. And if what you value is surface, flash, and sheen, you will be shaped into a people made up of surface, flash, and sheen. And you'll be less than what you were made for with no real muscle to face the hard stuff. You will run from suffering or you will craft your life to insulate yourself from suffering at every cost because suffering absolutely, positively cannot have a place that's in a life that values first surface, sheen, and flash. You can't suffer. So maybe surface, flash, and sheen isn't such a great ordering value, is it? Because Jesus ran towards suffering, didn't he? He made a beeline towards suffering. He suffered to heal suffering. And so maybe that surface, flash, and sheen shouldn't be such a great ordering value. And I got to say, church, in a culture that honors influencers and that honors celebrities simply because they are influential and famous, <laughs> Paul's warnings to first century people about being enamored by stuff like that does not seem that difficult to translate. <laughs> you and I, we need, we need to think hard about our values And we need to compare them. We need to hold them up in light of what Scripture values, in light of how Jesus lived his life. And we need to chuck the ones that aren't there. (laughs) And we need to cultivate and grow the ones that are. So Paul moves on to this next charge that's been leveled at him, and he does so with a flourish in verses 7 and 8. Did I commit a sin in humbling myself that you might be exalted? Because I preached the gospel to you free of charge, I robbed other churches by accepting support from them in order to serve you. That's sarcasm, just in case you you don't catch that. Paul did not rob other churches. Like I said earlier, this, this whole setup might seem really odd to us. So here's what's happening. When Paul lived in Corinth for a year and a half, he, he wouldn't take money from them. As far as we can tell, that's always what he did. When he moved into a new city to start to found a church there, that was always his practice. He'd accept hospitality, of course, and, but for the day-to-day expenses of his life, you know, to get something to eat, a place to sleep, he worked a side job. He was a, a tent maker, and when things got tight, as they often did, he would accept money from the churches that he had already founded, the churches that had sent him to that new place. Maybe that makes perfect sense to us. It kind of does. But it didn't to his friends there. They lived in a culture where patronage and benefaction were foundational to the social and economic fabrics. Most of the people that were contemporary to Paul lived at or below what we would call the poverty line, and their uh, survival was dependent on the support of a small minority of elites. 
who would act as patrons. And in return, these patrons would, of course, receive goods and services, but they would also receive more intangible things like honor and social capital and political capital. That's just how it worked. It was a complex, multi-layered system. And so to refuse patronage was to risk offending a superior, an elite. It was to make them feel as if you thought that you were better than them or that you wanted other people to think that you were better than them. These other teachers that had come in, they worked by the system of patronage and benefaction. They didn't have to humble themselves, as Paul put it, by working with their hands. And you can see very clearly how they wanted the church there to see Paul because he did things differently. It's in verse 11. Why does he do this? Paul says, is it because I don't love you? God knows I love you. That was the charge. They wanted the people to think Paul doesn't really love you because he won't take your money. And even though that was the charge, even though that's the thing they were saying about him, he's firm that he's going to keep on doing exactly what he's always done. In verse 9, he says, I refrained and I will refrain from burdening you in any way. In verse 10, he calls this a boast. And he makes an oath about it. As the truth of Christ is in me, this boasting of mine will not be silenced in all of the regions of Achaia. I'll never stop. And I want us to think about why. It isn't because Paul somehow thinks patronage is inherently wrong. He accepts patronage. In Romans 16, he mentions a woman in the church in Rome called Phoebe. She was a deacon, and he says she was a patron of many, including for me. In verse 9, he says when he lived in Corinth and he got stuck, he accepted help from Macedonian churches. He, he thanks people for their support in his letters all of the time. So why? Why was he so firm and not taking money from the folks where he was planting churches? Why did he risk ostracizing himself? Why did he want to be accused of being unloving? Why did he always run against the grain of social and cultural convention? Well, I'll tell you why. Because the gospel is a gift. And as far as he was concerned, it was always going to be offered to Corinth just like it came to him on that road outside of Damascus that blinding light that he didn't ask for that came to him anyway with new life. And it was, it was going to come to Corinth just like it comes to you and me and just like it comes to everyone with no strings attached, the surprising and unexpected gift of God for the hungry and the thirsty and the searching and for clowns and for liars and for fakes and for betrayers and for deniers and for prodigal kids and their older brothers for Marys and for Marthas, for sons of thunder, for lepers, for kings and tax collectors and prostitutes alike. It's going to come unearned, free of charge, by grace. Come everybody who thirsts, God said to his people through the prophet. Come everybody who thirsts. Come everyone who doesn't have any money (laughs) And buy and eat. Buy wine and buy milk without money and without price. Eat what is good. 
and delight yourselves in rich food. Church, that is always how the offer of God comes to people like us. Forgiveness of sins, a new way of life, a new family to live in. It comes as a gift. The immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness to us in Christ Jesus, free of charge. Now listen, I'm, I'm sure that Paul could have explained to that church how grace worked while he was taking money from them too. I mean, I, I have no doubt in his intellectual ability to be able to explain things to them, but he didn't and he wouldn't because some things are better taught by how we live. And church, in, in doing that, in being, as he put it, humbled so that they could be exalted, he was pointing to the very meaning of the death and resurrection and ascension of Jesus, who humbled himself so that we could be exalted. And part of your discipleship and my discipleship as an act of gratitude for this grace that we have been given is to think deeply about how we live our lives, even in the most mundane and common and everyday parts of them, and ask how me, we might live as pointers too to Jesus, who humbly gave himself freely for the life of the world. Let me pray for us. Father, we ask that you would help us to be a people <laughs> and we need help who think about the things that we value and who think hard about the ways that we live that may be contrary or running counter to the good news of Jesus. And wherever we find those things, give us the faith and the courage and the hope to be able to put them aside and to think creatively and thoughtfully and wisely about new ways that we need to, new things that we need to value and new ways to live. Father, help us to do this um, through every means that you have. Help us to do this um, by encouraging us to encourage one another. Help us through worship and sacraments and prayer and the disciplines. But grow us up in the faith, Father, so that through us you can be, we can be a people through whom you love this world. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.